Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 12. If you're using a pew Bible located at the bottom of a chair in front of you, you can turn to page 848. I'll be reading Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the seasons came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the hare. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Now, Father, we love you, our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We thank you for this time that we can spend in your word, speaking to us, speaking to those throughout generations, declaring reality, the truth. May our eyes be open to your wonderful truth, to your mercy, most of all, to your wonderful Son. In his name we pray, amen. I want to take a few minutes this morning and speak to you about God at his best, man at his worst. God at his best, man at his worst. Catherine and I were recently, a few weeks ago, I guess we were watching a documentary on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And it covered the final days that led up to his untimely death. And I, I, watched, I watched with a heightened sense of curiosity as to what those last days were like, what he did, what he did, where he went, what he said. Just kind of curious, knowing that he was going to die. This portion of the Gospel of Mark is, is recording the events that took place leading up to the last week and ultimately the, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And it was on the Wednesday, it was on the Wednesday before the Friday of his crucifixion that Jesus enters into the temple. Now you see a picture, it's, a, it's just a model, it's a model of the temple and the temple mount. This, this was a, a massive, a massive sacred site. And Jesus had been there before, but in the week before his crucifixion, Wednesday, he 
He goes inside this massive sacred site. I'm told it's it's a 35-acre complex. Now, to put that in perspective, if you've been to the Yum Center downtown, that sits on seven acres. And that's it's pretty big. It's massive. But imagine the temple complex, 35 acres. And there's, a, there's an area in the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. And inside that court, there, there would be tables set up for sellers. And the worshipers would come and they would buy sacrificial animals and then they would receive the proper currency that they needed in order to pay the temple tax. And when Jesus came in on this particular Wednesday before his death on Friday, he became angry and he began to turn the tables of the sellers upside down. You just kind of imagine this in your mind, this this massive sacred site. This sort of thing does not take place in the temple, but Jesus was turning the tables over and it said he was, he was running out the sellers and the buyers, just running them out. Why? And why was Jesus doing this? And he was, he was doing it at great risk because this sort of thing doesn't happen in the temple. Why was Jesus doing this? Well, we get a hint of it when he, when he said, you know, this, this, you, you've turned this place of worship, this place of prayer, you've turned it into a den of robbers. What in the world does Jesus mean by that? Well, A den of robbers is not where the robbing takes place. I mean, think about it. A den of robbers is not a place where the robbing takes place. It's it's where you hide out after the crime takes place. See, Jesus Jesus was implying that it it was like they went out, they went out and they went on their crime spree and then they come back to the temple to hide out. Now, what exactly is Jesus saying? And what crime have they committed? What robbing have they done? And what Jesus is saying is they were living on the assumption that God neither saw nor cared what they did outside of showing up for worship. In other words, they were, they were, they were acting and living as if all that mattered is I just come to the temple or I'll, I'll come to the gathering place. I'll, I'll come. I'll be there. But it doesn't matter what I do beyond that. But they were wrong. They were wrong. And Jesus' actions were extremely provocative. And what happens after this incident, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask him this question, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come into this sacred site? To come in here and start disrupting things and disrupting our worship. Who do you think you are? And Jesus does not give them an answer. Instead, he gives them a story. He gives them a story. He gives them a parable. In a sense, a Christmas parable. It's a parable that reveals two important things. One, the character of God, and secondly, the character of man. There might be those here today, might be here today, you're you're sitting here this morning, or maybe those who will hear this by way of radio. And maybe you have built a case against God. I mean, maybe down deep, you have built a case 
for God's unreasonableness. You, 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 you kind of feel like, you won't say this out loud maybe, sometimes it'll leak out, but most of the time you won't talk about this, you feel that God has been unfair, God's been unkind, and so maybe you have come to a place in your life where you have either shut the door completely on God, or you're in the process of closing the door on God. But I want you to know, even if you have shut the door on God, He's perfectly able to slide a story underneath the door. A story that shows God at his best. So let's look at it. In verse 1, in verse 1, Jesus tells a parable about a man planting a vineyard. Notice he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it out and then went into another country. Now, a vineyard. Now, you and I are not familiar with a vineyard, but vineyards were commonplace in, in this day. They were about as commonplace as Chinese restaurants and pizza places in Mount Washington. Uh, so vineyards, vineyards were everywhere. And it, when Jesus started talking about a vineyard, it was a reference that all of his hearers would understand. They immediately knew what Jesus was talking about because in the Old Testament scriptures, you see, that's what they had at that time. They had the Old Testament. They did not have the New Testament. In the Old Testament, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, we, we read a parable of such that God, the vineyard owner, had built a vineyard, which was a way of saying Israel, and that he had, he had created them, he had brought them about, he, he had nurtured them, he had taken care of them. He had provided for them, just like a, a vineyard owner would do for his vineyard. And it was pointing out that Israel, Israel was like a vineyard. God was like a vineyard owner. And what it was demonstrating was that God is a very caring God. God cares deeply about people. So, so, so if, you, if you're here this morning and maybe you've, you, you, you're thinking that God is a bit unreasonable, I, I hope you'll see here that God is a very caring God. And the point here that Jesus is making is there's an accountability, an expectation of fruitfulness to God for what he has established. J Jesus said there's this vineyard owner and he, he, he prepares this vineyard and he's, he's, he's caring for it because he's expecting fruit from it. We see that next when a series of servants are sent to see what fruits have been produced. And, in, and the implication is this. Fruit is expected. God is a God who expects fruit from his people. Sufficient time had been given. Servants were sent. Sufficient time, meaning that not only God is caring, God is fair. Enough time had been given. There, there should have been fruit. Servants were sent to gather the fruit. What, what is Jesus saying here? What, what is he wanting us to see here? Well, see, these servants that were sent in the parable portray a wave of prophets who were sent by God in the Old Testament. Yeah, you work, maybe, you know, you're getting close to the end of the year, start the new year. Some of you, you know, I'm going to read through the Bible. And you start reading through the Bible, you get to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you have a big, a big jolt to your system. But then if you get, if you keep going, you're going to run into the prophets. You're going to run into these, these people that God sent, these men who God sent to the people of Israel to warn them and to call them back to repent, to come back to God. 
And Israel's treatment of these prophets is not a pretty picture. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, here's what Jesus said about their treatment. He said, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and built, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. I mean, you'll notice here in the, in the parable, Jesus said, one servant it comes in, and, and then the, they, they do away with him, and then they send another, and, and then the owner sends another, and each servant is treated worse than the first. In other words, instead of getting fruit, they get hostility. And then what's amazing about this parable, and, and, it, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in Luke's account of this parable, the owner of the vineyard asked this question, what shall I do? What shall I do? Now, let's kind of catch up your mind a little bit. The owner has been caring and expects fruit from his vineyard, and so he sends servants, and they mistreat the servants and ultimately begin to kill the servants. And then he says, what shall I do? So let me ask you, what would you do? If you were the vineyard owner, what would you do at this point? I mean, what, what do you expect this vineyard owner to do? What would you do? Well, it's likely, isn't it? It's likely that we would seek revenge, right? I mean, they've mistreated the servants that I've sent. We can't let this go on. We're going to have to retaliate in some way. We're going to have to do something. We're going to have to do something to correct this situation. But that's not what we see the owner do. And this is, this is probably maybe the climax of this parable. When the owner begins to say, what shall I do? He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't seek retaliation. No, what we see is God at his best. Not only is he caring, not only is he fair, he's patient. In fact, what we see happening here is what is called macrothymia. Macrothymia. And that means this. It's when a person in a position of power who can exact vengeance on his enemies, but chooses not to do so. In other words, this vineyard owner, which represents God in the story, has all the power to seek vengeance and to retaliate against his enemies, but he doesn't do it. Instead, he puts his anger far away, and he says this, I will send my beloved son. And at this point, you want to say, what are you thinking? The owner is going to send his only beloved son alone and unarmed. And then he says this, surely, I mean, surely they're going to respect my son. And we look at this story, we think, yes, surely they will respect the owner's son. Surely they will stand in awe of the owner's son. Surely they will be ashamed at what they have done. Surely. I read a story about King Hussein, the former king of Jordan. And by all accounts, this is an accurate, true event, though amazing. One night in the early 1980s, King Hussein was informed by his security police that a group of about 75 Jordanian army officers 
were at that very moment meeting in a nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of the kingdom. The security officers requested permission to surround the barracks and arrest the plotters. After a somber pause, the king refused and said, bring me a helicopter. The helicopter was brought. The king climbed in with the pilot and and himself, and they flew to the barracks and landed on its flat roof. The king told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away at once without me. Unarmed, King Hussein then walked down two flights of stairs and suddenly appeared in the room where the plotters were meeting and quietly said to them these words. Gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will plunge into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. After a moment of stunned silence, the rebels, as one, rushed forward to kiss the king's hand and feet and pledge loyalty to him for life. But this is not what happens to the vineyard owner's son, is it? In fact, look at verses 7 and 8. It says, but... Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. We've just made a turn here. From God at his best to man at his worst. A few of you remember just a few months ago the solar eclipse. When the eclipse took place, one of the things the hospitals had to face was all the people who came in who had put sunscreen on their eyeballs hoping that this would help them to look up at the solar eclipse. Yeah, yeah. Yet, think about it. As bizarre as that is, now think about this. We live in a world that is doing almost anything to make sure that it doesn't look at the most impressive person the world's ever seen. Isn't that something? It's crazy. In fact, we we read it earlier in John chapter 1. You'll see these words again. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. At Christmas, God sent his son into the world who should have been greeted with joy and gratitude and humility, but rather he was rejected and ultimately killed. Man at his worst So we ask, and we got to ask this, what sort of God would send his son into a world? Send his son into the hands of enemies as we see in this parable. What sort of God would do this? And the answer is a God at his best. A God at his best who recognizes a very great need. And he's going to work it all for good. Now, in this parable, it doesn't look like this is going to work for good, does it? The vineyard owner has sent his only beloved son, and they have killed him. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 doesn't appear to even fit in this parable. Jesus said, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what in the world is that all about? Now, How does that fit in this parable? What is Jesus trying to say here that we need to hear and that we'll see it is marvelous? Well, 
When builders went to build a building, they needed a cornerstone. It was absolutely essential. It was the most important stone in laying the foundation because the cornerstone, which was a massive, large, heavy stone, it would set uh, the angles for the walls. Notice, if you want to get it right, you, you want to get it into plumb, you want to get it right so it's going to be stable, you need a cornerstone. It was the most carefully selected of all the stones. It had to be perfect. It could not be flawed. It could not be imperfect. It had to be perfect. But notice it said the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Imagine there's this stone and the builders look at it and they say, that's no use. And they kind of throw it out in the weeds. They get it moved out way away. And they don't need it. They don't want it. They've rejected it. Jesus said the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejected stone has become the most important stone. What's Jesus saying? Well, God brings back the stone that was rejected and puts it in its rightful place. See, what we're seeing in this parable is first it's reflecting the incarnation. It's reflecting the Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming down and taking on human flesh. God sending forth His Son into a world of enemies. But then we see that this rejected stone is the crucified Christ and the restored cornerstone is the resurrected Christ. So what Jesus is saying in this parable is, is, is their rejection of him was, was like a cornerstone, like a stone just being thrown away. But God steps in. The God is going to work things for good in spite of a world of rebels who have rejected and killed his son. He is going to make it for good. And he takes the rejected, crucified Christ and raises him. And then we read about it in... First Peter, let me read these words to you. In First Peter, for it stands in Scripture, behold, well, let me back up a little bit. As you come to him, now this is as you come to Jesus, as you receive him, as you put your faith in him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter, Peter's saying this, God at his best is working it all for good. All those, all those who receive Christ, they are like living stones they're like living stones that God is taking. He's taking you, you, and you, and you. And he's, he's putting us like, like stones into a building, a temple that he is building, built upon the cornerstone of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11, it says, And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. If you were here last Sunday... You remember we looked at the word marvel. We're going we're to marvel at Christ when he comes back. 
It's, it's, when we see him, it's going to be beyond our expectations. It's going to be beyond what our mind can comprehend. And once again, we're seeing this rare word in Scripture. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous what God is doing, what he's working for good. God at his best has taken man at his worst and been able to work it for good. So, one final thing this morning. We face a very serious challenge here, and it is this. We must face this reality. God is a fruit-seeking God. If you remember anything this morning about this parable, remember this. God is a fruit-seeking God. He is fair. He cares. He provides what is needed for us. He extends much grace, much mercy. He is fair, he is caring, he is patient, but he expects fruit. In other words, forget, forget, about, forget about whatever minister wants of you. Forget about what your pastor wants of you. Forget about what any minister wants of you. Forget about what other people want of you. Is God finding what he wants in your life? That's something you're going to have to face in this parable. That's the serious challenge. The living God is a fruit-seeking God. And what we're finding in this parable is the only way that we can begin to bear the fruit God expects is to receive his son. Surely you remember this. You remember what Jesus said. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. There's that language again. There's that imagery that's used again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And you see, the, again, God is a fruit-seeking God. But then he goes on and says this. Abide in me. Jesus is saying, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God is a fruit-seeking God. The only way that we can bear the fruit that God wants is to be connected to his Son to receive his son, to abide in his son. And I want you to beware of something before we go today. Please beware of this. You can receive Christ with a heart that is rejecting him and not even realize it. Let me say it a little softer. You can receive Christ with a heart that is rejecting him at the same time and not even realize it. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, some, some people, let's just use this example. Some people look at Jesus as a therapist, my, my Jesus therapist. I'll drop in, I'll drop in Jesus. And Jesus, you know, my life is kind of messed up in this area over here. Now, the rest of my life, you stay out of. You stay out of this part. But this right here is really messed up. My relationship, my marriage, my job. Straighten this out for me. Help me. Help me out. 
tell me how to think about this. Tell me how to work through this so, so I can get things back on track. I'm not interested in you being in any other part of my life. See, you can receive Jesus with a heart, with a heart. You can say with your mouth, I receive Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. You can do that. Understand, beware. You can do that with, at the same time, having a heart that is rejecting Jesus. Friends, I think you know what I'm talking about because I think you see this quite often. I know I do. See, Jesus is not your therapist to help you navigate life as you want it. No, no, Jesus is to be your life. Not to navigate life the way you want it or I want it. Jesus comes to be our life. And as you come to him, listen, as you come to him, even at your worst, you will experience God at his best. And he will place you as a living stone in the temple that he is building. And it is a marvelous thing.